We have a very unique episode to bring you today. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about our sponsors. If you are like every other church in America, along with First Apostolic Church, we have discovered that we are in need of tools. We're in need of processes. We're in need of systems. And probably most of all, tracking when it comes to making disciples. When you join the movement, when you're a part of the disciple making movement, um, you're gonna come to a conference that's gonna give you all of those things. As a matter of fact, we are bringing in Pastor Timothy Lee all the way from Singapore. If you've not heard of him, I want you to know uh, he and a great team, uh, they are developing all these different programs, all these different systems. They have made tools and they're gonna make them available at the movement conference. You do not wanna miss these things. I promise you, it's gonna change your life. It's gonna turn people who are sitting in pews, people who are sitting um, on seats in church sanctuaries who are wanting to do more, it's gonna empower them to make disciples. You don't wanna miss it. Go to livethemovement.org today for more information, or you can email them at info at livethemovement.org. This conference is August the 31st through September 2nd. Come check it out. Come visit with Brian and I. There's going to be a whole bunch of things there to do. It is August 31st through September 2nd. Go to livethemovement.org for discounted ticket prices. I believe they are in phase three of the pricing, so don't wait until it's too late. Go to livethemovement.org today. Hello, my fellow podcast listeners. It's Charity Sanders from Modest Direct here. I have been super excited to get a chance to connect with the Crucial Conversation listeners these past few months. ModestDirect.com specializes in women's clothing. I try to have a vast range of inventory that is changing and updating weekly. ModestDirect.com has a variety of styles. We have the Flannery Carpenter Collection that has been a huge hit for those that love the trendy new look. We have gorgeous dresses, pencil skirts, and unique tops that keep our customers coming back again and again. We are a five-star Google-rated company. Yay, Modest Direct! Customer service is my number one goal. We don't have anything on our website over $50. Modest Direct offers women's apparel in most styles from small to plus sizes. Follow us on Modest Direct on Instagram and like the Modest Direct Facebook page. I would just love to give you the opportunity to sign up for our email group at modestdirect.com. We give exclusive chances to sales there and often release new inventory to the VIP email group first. Make sure and use the Crucial Conversation 21. That's Crucial Conversation 21 coupon code for 10% off your entire order. ModestDirect.com can't wait to hear from you and help you with all your shopping needs. I think it's crucial that you visit ModestDirect.com and we have a great conversation about all the modest clothing that you are going to love. God bless you. Hello, Crucial Conversation listeners, pastors, youth pastors, leaders in your local church. My name is Corey Sanders and I want to introduce you to God First Living. God First Living is a seminar that equips and teaches saints to balance business with blessings so they can succeed in both the secular and the spiritual to further the kingdom and be the best they can be in their local church. I have been a business owner since I have been 19 years of age, so 20 plus years of experience living the principles of God First Living. 
My workshops and seminars are to educate believers on how to take a passion and turn it into a thriving business that blesses you personally and the kingdom. Learn how to build a successful business and to be productive and powerful in your local assembly by living a balanced life. I will give your church body attendees practical tools backed by biblical principles that have allowed my family to live in the abundant blessing. Our mission theme at our church, Apostolic Center, is give and go. Some people can give and some can go. I wanted to be able to do both. And because of these God first principles, I have the opportunity to go all over the country and all over the world in ministry. Because you can be successful in business and successful in the kingdom. It's learning how to balance and God first living principles will show you how. Anyone can do this. I only have an high school education, no business degrees, no businessman father that taught me the ropes, just a burden, started a business, learned to balance, and living in blessing. This is for every saint or entrepreneur that wants to step into blessing and be blessed personally and bless their local assembly by giving and doing more in the kingdom of God. It's not just inspirational talk, but a testimony of a desire to be more in the kingdom and live in the overflow by building a thriving business, a fruitful ministry, and a balanced life. For more information, go to my website, GodFirstLiving.com. Once again, GodFirstLiving.com. And I'll end with this. I live by the words of my friend and late missionary, Brother Steve Willoughby, who's spoken to my life. If you take care of God's business, he will take care of yours. God First Living. God bless. Man, that's a lot of great stuff. Now, let's get to this awesome interview with Pastor Clifton Lejeune. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Right off the bat, bro, give me an acronym right now, right now. Don't wait. Um... Safe. People playing it safe. Safe Christianity. Safe is an acronym standing for satisfied and feeling empty. So this is what this man, this is what I've, what I've remembered the most, Brian, about a marriage retreat that we had. I think that he was 15, 16, somewhere in there um, that we had this awesome couple come to our church that I was absolutely dreading to go see because I had no idea who they were. Uh, I figured here comes another marriage seminar where I'm going to find out everything I'm doing wrong. Uh, I'm going to realize that I'm a bad husband and I'm going to have to go home and talk out my feelings. And we're going to have to, uh, um, you know, talk out everything I've done wrong. And then she's going to use my words as ammunition for things I've done in the past. Boy, was I wrong. Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, what you just described is, is the ammunition that I use to create the marriage seminars that I do because I can't stand those. And so one of the things that we pride ourselves in is that it is the men 
who drag their wives to the marriage retreats once they come and experience it. Because the key to all of it is the man. It's the husband. He was first. He was made first. The the man is the husband. He is the house band. That's where the word husband comes from. The word house band. It's a reference to the old wood slap barrels with a metal ring. Remove the metal ring. The contents fall apart. You want the family to fall apart to remove the house band. The abbreviation of the, of the word family is fly, F-L-Y. And the reason most families, most children's dreams never get off the ground is because of the breakdown of the family. So uh, if, if the man is unfulfilled, if the man is constantly being bashed, uh, you, you won't do anything long-term or well that you do not enjoy. You, if you endure your marriage, if you endure church, if you endure ministry, you're not going to do it long-term or well. So we have to figure out a way how to enjoy our life, how to enjoy ministry, how to enjoy marriage. So uh, I, I work hard at putting the fun back into all of that. There it is. Well, we're going to hit this podcast running, Brian, who the guy you're hearing from pastors um, in Louisiana. We actually had his wife on, I think it's what, Brian, three episodes ago. Is that right? Somewhere in there. Um, This is Paula's husband, Clifton Lejeune. Bro, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with Brian and I. This is an episode I have been dying to record. Uh, for the simple reason, after we got done recording with your wife, uh, we, we sat down and we continued the phone call. Um, you, you came in the room and all of a sudden we just started talking and uh, me and Brian just kept looking at each other like, should, should we hit the record button now? Because this dude is just dropping knowledge on us. And it made me want to have you on the podcast and, you know, just kind of talk a little bit um, about what you're very passionate about. And it was very obvious what you were passionate about. We're going to talk a lot about fear tonight because that's something that has just stricken the world um, with uh, the pandemic today is another thing with uh, the gas might be going away. Gasoline for vehicles might be going away uh, because some cyber hack. Uh, tomorrow it's going to be something else. Next month it'll be something else. We're going to talk a lot about that. But before we get there, um, we like to get to know who you are. Um, our listeners like to get to know who you are. If they don't know anything about you, um, we're going to get to know you on a deeper level. Uh, I love, I think Brian came up with it, this saying, we want to get to know you beyond the pulpit. Everybody knows you as a preacher or as a, um, as a teacher or a uh, pastor, um, but we want to get to know you beyond that. Tell us a little bit about you know, who you are, where you come from, how you got involved in ministry. Uh, you know, tell us the whole story here. Well, I'm, I may be the exception to the rule because what I am behind the pulpit is what I am away from the pulpit. Uh, I do my very best to be real. I want to practice real religion, not religion. I don't want to relive something. I want it to be real. And we're fishers of men. We're supposed to reel them in. And the reason they aren't reeled in is because people are so fake. And what's presented in the pulpit is often not what's the reality behind. We create this this unbelievable, uh, impossible to attain version of Christianity. Matter of fact, I'm thinking right now of a message I just preached titled The Impossible Commandment. The Impossible Commandment is Jesus saying, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is the impossible commandment. Unless you go to Hebrews, where the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats could never make the comers there unto perfect as pertaining to conscience. The way we become perfect, the way we fulfill the impossible commandment is by having a clean conscience. It is not by being without error. It is not by being perfect in every way. It is by having a clean conscience. And that only comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. So I'm able to, in my opinion, be what I am in behind the pulpit as well as away from the pulpit. So my name is Clifton. I'm left-handed, bow-legged, ball-headed, and flat-footed. Um, my mother's been married 
four times. My dad was our second husband. My uncle's a bandito, his wife a prostitute, and my brother a drug dealer. When I received the Holy Ghost in January 2nd, 1983, I had a joint in my back pocket and dirty pictures in my wallet. I got rid of the dirty pictures. <laughs> What'd you do with the joint? I'm hanging on just a little while longer. There it is. Actually, I was pausing for effect to see what you would say. So uh, I received the Holy Ghost in Jennings, and uh, I, before coming to the Lord, I had questions, and so I was told by my catechism teachers to ask the priests. So my last three catechism teachers were Miss Mo Miss Morgan, Miss Bonig, and Miss Barry Ezetel, and my last three priests were Father Boulay, Father uh, Father Growth, and Father Burrell. And uh, I would go to those priests, and I would ask them the questions, and they could not answer my questions. They would always point to the Catholic encyclopedia or the early church fathers or different things that were extra biblical. And I knew something inside of me said, this isn't right. What does the word say? So I was very word intense. I remember as a little boy being told that the Bible was inerrant, that there were no errors in it. And so I would look for misspellings in my grandmother's Catholic Bible. I would look for a page that wasn't printed properly, whatever, because if I could find a fault in it, well, then it wasn't really the Bible. And of course, that's not what they meant. But they taught me that the word of God was in error. It was without error. So that laid a foundation for me in studying and having an analytical mind towards the word of God. That's what led me to truth. Whenever preachers could not answer my questions, I consider all preachers wrong. The word is right. What does the word say? And as the 13 and 14 year old boy, the Lord began to show me John 3, 5, you must be born of water and of the spirit. Acts 2, 38. First uh, John chapter five, blood, water, spirit. I began to see all of this and I began to bring that to the priests, to the catechism teachers. And finally, God filled me with the Holy Ghost in January of 83 and I was baptized. And I was a member of the church uh, for 12 years and I've been pastoring it for 27. So I've been in Jennings my whole life. I'm 53 years old. Uh, I've been the D.A.R.E. graduation speaker for the last uh, 25 years. The D.A.R.E. program, of course, is the anti-drug uh, and bullying program. I'm the D.A.R.E. graduation speaker. And the Lord gave me a simple principle. I got a rug. I put a big letter D on it. I call it my D rug. I put a kid on the D rug. Now the kid is on the rugs. If you want to be successful, you got to get off the rug. So I bring out a guy who knows how to get high because he can fly. He's a superhero. He has a cape. He's capable of so much more. But he meets a man named Nick whose middle initial is O. He's a teenager. Nick O'Teen. And Nick O'Teen introduces him to a four-foot cigarette called My Burial. And this leads the superhero to the D-Rug. Now the superhero is a super zero. And the man of steel becomes the man who steals. Why? Because drugs drag the worst out of everybody. And so I tie a rope around his leg and I drag him across the floor. Drugs drag you places you don't want to go to the detox center, to the divorce court, to the morgue, because dope is a rope that robs you of your hope, your inability to cope because you can't say no. All you do is mope. Your life is going down a slippery slope. All of this because of dope. <laughs> so I've got this, this cool little speech that I've written that God gave me 25 years ago that I've given 50 times. So that's why it's top of the mind. And uh, so I'm very big about being involved in the community. As a matter of fact, I tell our church all the time, you have to be involved to evolve. And to evolve, your life must revolve around that which does not dissolve. And that requires a great deal of resolve. Man. You getting all that? <laughs> Man, that makes me, makes me for sure never want to be a bank-addicted drug robber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So anyway... Um, so the real me, is what you see is what you get. That's the old um, user interface for a Macintosh, WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. And I feel like that's what's lacking often in the church. Uh, people aren't getting or they're getting what they're seeing and what they're seeing is fakery, especially as it pertains to the word of God, as it pertains to what it really says. If the word says it, I believe it. If the Bible, if Jesus Christ does not heal the sick, then he does not forgive sins. If he does not raise the dead, then he does not forgive sins. If there is no resurrection, then there is no forgiveness. And we absolutely believe in the forgiveness of sins. You cannot take the Bible and make it a buffet 
where only the parts that you understand and agree with are the ones that you believe and preach. We must preach the book, whether I understand it or agree with it is irrelevant. The word is right, not the preacher. The word is right. And so I'll always go back to the word. What does the word say? I don't care what religion says. I don't care what my peers are saying. What does the word say? So as it pertains to what's happening in our culture, I go back to the word. So I have this instinct that has kept me from becoming extinct. And this instinct is, is the word that's inside of my heart. And if the word is hidden in our heart, it'll, it'll illuminate a path. So the second that they announced that we could not hold services instinctively, there's no, I pushed back instantly. I didn't need to query or to call, contact the superintendent or a local presbyter or find out what other churches are doing. I know this is between Clifton and Jesus Christ. I know my call. I know what I'm supposed to do. This doesn't apply to anyone. This is for me. The second they tell Clifton that Clifton can't have church, Clifton's having church. When you cross the faith line, you've crossed the line. So in March of 2020, when the governor of Louisiana stated we could not have more than 250 people in our building, I immediately contacted our uh, district attorney, Michael Cassidy, and I told him, you're going to have to arrest me because I'm not stopping. He said, well, Clifton, I said, no, sir. I said, there is no asterisk in the Constitution that suspends law because of a health uh, crisis. If that were the case, then there'd be a health crisis every other year or every other election year. I did my research in 1738 when George Washington was six years old. There was a pandemic. The founders of our country knew about health crisis. They knew about pandemics. They did not write anything in the law that suspended law because of a health crisis. And so he says, well, Clifton, you could be guilty. I said, guilty of what? I've done nothing wrong. There, I, I asked him, I said, how is it that, because he's Catholic, I asked him, how is it that a woman in America has the right to kill a fetus, a baby in her body that is eight and a half months old? Yet I don't have the right to assemble in a building where I might catch a disease that I have a 99% chance of surviving from. He said, well, you have a point. I said, yes, I have a point. So then they send the sheriff deputy after me. So the sheriff kind of circled our building a couple of times. And then he sent one of his uh, top deputies to my house and said, Clifton, you know, you've always been a good guy. I said, I didn't stop being a good guy. I'm still a good guy. I'm not a bad guy because I'm having church. I know where the bad guys are. And so do you. I can take you to the street. He said, well, we're just asking you to comply. I told him I'm not going to comply. I'm not trying to be ugly, but I will not comply with any law or with any mandate that violates my faith. I will not do it. Are you going to surrender your weapon? Are you going to give me your rifle? Are you going to give me your shotgun and your pistol? If you are not willing to surrender your Second Amendment right, I'm not surrendering my First Amendment. The reason the First Amendment exists is because words before war. I want to use words. Let me use my words so that we don't go to war. I don't I don't want to hold up in my house with an AR-15 thinking that I can hold off a thousand men with weapons. That's insanity. The reason they don't want us to assemble is because they don't want these words to infect the ears of the people because they have a monopoly on the ears of people. He that hath an ear, let him hear. The problem isn't ears. The problem is hearers. And they have weaponized the narrative. They've weaponized fear. He who controls the narrative controls the people. And so we have, we've, we've succeeded the ground to education and to Hollywood and to media. And they have created a narrative and everybody is following suit. Whoever the storyteller is, they get to write the rules. The, the, the moment we are no longer afraid to die is the second we are free. Matter of fact, I'm trying to think of the message I just preached about the day death dies is the day you live. That's the message. The day death dies is the day you live. Somehow you got to figure out how to kill death. And I, there's a scripture the Lord gave me about six months ago that because I knew I, I know what's going on. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind, the fear of death has been weaponized. The word is thanatophobia. When you are in fear of death, if someone can convince you that they will kill you and you're convinced of it, brother, you'll do anything. 
more so if they have a if they have a video, a live video stream, and there is a 357 Magnum pointing at your son's head and a hammer is cocked, you will you will you will approach the president with a weapon. You'll do anything to, because of the fear of death. Now they know this, and so now they've gotten people who are willing willingly doing things that who, who would have thought in North America that to, to shut down the American church. It would not take guns and the threat of a guillotine and decapitation. It would take a simple, kind request from the federal government. That's it. Just, just a request. Please don't have church. Okay, okay, fine, fine. We're done. What? Absolutely not. I told one of my pastor friends, how is it that we justify sending a missionary? I won't say his name, but we have a missionary that goes to Iran where he violates the law of the land and gets people to assemble in violation of the law under the threat of being decapitated in Iran. How can we justify sending them money and sending that man there when we refuse to gather under fear of getting a $500 fine or whatever? How dare we do this? The hypocrisy is unbelievable to me, the duplicity. And this is the problem. It's all about the show. It's all surface. And I'm not about, this is real to me. I bought this. The Bible says, buy the truth. Truth has to be paid for. You do not respect what you have not bought, what you have not invested in. Truth cannot be transmitted. It can't be transferred. It can't be donated. It can't be passed down. Truth must be paid for by the truth. I bought this. When I came to the Lord, this cost me everything. It cost me my family. It cost me my friends. All my I come from a, a broken home. My mom was divorced. As I told you earlier, all this junk. When I got in church, they told me I joined a cult. They thought I was brainwashed. All my friends stopped hanging out with me because I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't vulgar. All this other stuff. This cost me at least two and a half to three years of isolation. I remember very well living in, from 1983 to 1988, 89 when I was in college. And everyone, no one believed what I believed. No one understood what I understood. But I had an experience and I had seen something. I am exactly in that same spot again at 53 years old. I am right now reliving what I lived early on. I feel like the Lord has prepared me for this age and for this culture because I am doing what I had to do back then. I see something that very few people see and I'm living in a way that very few people are living. This is what I knew from the beginning. But once I was convinced, I'm done. What, I cannot unsee what I've seen. I've seen too much and I know too much. I know too much about the gospel to preach something less than Acts 238. And I know too much about virology and immunology and uh, what industrial hygienists who are the subject matter experts as pertaining to aerosolized power particles in the air with viruses. I've, I've read, I've got all this material. I began assimilating this over the uh, beginning in February. I began assimilating all this data and all the scientific research and finding out how it's being suppressed. They're suppressing any type of prophylaxis. They, they don't want anyone to go outside. They want you inside. They don't want you exposed to the sun where you could get vitamin D and be healthy. They, 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 they poo-pooed hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, and, uh, and, and several other things that I know for a fact. As a matter of fact, I couldn't get any hydroxychloroquine. So what I did is I found out what the main ingredient was. It's quinine. So I ordered some quinine off of Amazon and I ordered some uh, zinc sulfate, 220 milligrams off of Amazon and began dispensing this to people in my church and watching God use that to heal them. A pastor and his wife got diagnosed with COVID and the doctor sent them home, gave them nothing. I went to their home and gave them the quinine, gave them the zinc sulfate and the vitamin D and their, their headache went away that night. They were well within 24 hours. I could say the same thing to my brother-in-law and, and two of my sisters-in-law had the exact same diagnosis. Doctor did nothing for them. I gave them the quinine and the hydroxy, excuse me, and the uh, zinc sulfate. Then I finally got some hydroxychloroquine that came in from, from the UK, took eight weeks to come in. I've dispensed that even as yesterday, I had another man come to me who's been diagnosed with COVID, can't get the medicine, I gave it to him. It's insane. 
What's going on is they've weaponized fear. There is an agenda that is way beyond just about diseases. There is there is something going on. I'm, I'm afraid what's happened. This is my, my, my true. Okay, let me back up. I believe that there is someone on earth has contacted a level of demonic intelligentsia. And from that has weaponized this information. I'm talking about, can, can you imagine um, one disease as a global impact? I preached a message in April titled The Great Planetary Reset. Now that's a big term, the, the Great Reset. I can give you the notes. I can give you the audio file when I preached it. In my mind, in the scriptures, there was only two previous planetary resets where the entire planet was reset. That's the Tower of Babel and the Flood of Noah. This pandemic has been a great glow. No matter where you are on planet Earth, you are affected by COVID-19. This would have been impossible without social media. So we've got the convergence of social media, which in and of itself is a contagion with an actual virus that doesn't have near the capacity to wound, to maim, to kill as it's been given. But it doesn't matter because people's fear of it has amplified its effect. And the fear is more effective than the actual effect. Kind of like a sin. Some sins, the accusation is worse than the act. If you get accused, it's worse than actually doing it because as long as there's an accusation, it's floating in people's minds. Well, that's what's happened. This fear of COVID. Matter of fact, if you have cancer, that's better because for cancer, at least there's chemo. You get COVID, oh, it's the worst. People are more afraid of COVID than they are cancer right now. It's absolutely insane. So again, at the beginning of this, the Lord gave me a simple principle. When fear is present, rational thought is absent. I want to repeat that. When fear is present, rational thought is absent. That's based on 1 Timothy when Paul said, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. The phrase sound mind in Greek means rational thought. All right. So I'll begin a paragraph. I, Clifton Lejeune, being of a sound mind, hereby bequeath all of my earthly possessions. That's a will. That's called the last will and testament of Clifton Lejeune. And he begins with I being of a sound mind. If an attorney after I die can prove that when I wrote that will, I was not of a sound mind, then my will is invalidated. The reason people today cannot execute their will is because they are not of a sound mind. Fear is present. When fear is present, rational thought is absent. That is the only conclusion I can come up with when I see people that I love and respect who are educated, more educated than me, who are making decisions that, in my opinion, are completely antithetical to the scriptures. They're outright opposing the scriptures. They are obeying man over God as opposed to obeying God over man. Again, so uh, how, how do I obey? How do I, whenever he said, uh, these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Does that include infectious diseases? Or was he making an exception? How can you lay hands on someone that you're social distancing from? How can you lay hands on someone that you're not even allowed to come into contact with? Wouldn't it be weird if I could find in the scriptures where people came to the synagogue, to the temple where Jesus was? Oh, in Matthew chapter four, guess what? Jesus is preaching in the temple and they came to him and he healed them. The sick came to church and were healed in the church. So I know this is what they did in the scriptures. How can we justify not assembling? How can we obey Paul? Four times Paul says, Greet the brethren with a holy kiss. And you can debate me about what it means to kiss a man. Obviously, it doesn't mean put your lips on another man's lips. But it certainly does not mean to not come into contact. Greeting the brethren with a holy kiss indicates there must be some type of contact, brother to brother contact within the church. You cannot fulfill greet the brethren with a holy kiss. You cannot honor Acts 2.38. You cannot fulfill repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and be filled with the Holy Ghost 
honoring the, the mandate to not assemble. Therefore, those mandates do not apply. Just as our missionaries violate the law, whenever someone came and says, Clifton, you have to obey the law of the land. Immediately, my first thought was, hold on a second. I'm not the one violating the law of the land. The man that's doing that, his name is John Bell Edwards. He's the governor of the state of Louisiana. He is the man violating the law of the land because the law of the land is called the Constitution of the United States of America. And that law states that the government cannot keep us from assembling or forbidding us to practice our faith. So I know what the law says, but the law is of no value if no one is ready to execute that law, if no one is willing to enforce that law, just like a person's will. If you're not willing to enforce your will, then your will is of no effect. So the reason people's will has become invalidated is because they're not of a sound mind. And the illustration I think that comes to my mind is from the movie um, uh, Jurassic Park. Uh, just the other day, I, was, uh, I just saw a snippet of it. And the guy's running from the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, he's running and the Tyrannosaurus is just chomping at him. And he's running and running and he gets to the Jeep and he opens the door to the Jeep and he closes the door to the Jeep and like, okay, now all he has to do is put the key in the ignition, start the Jeep and it takes off. And in this particular scene, it's not that the Jeep won't start. It's that the guy can't get the keys in the ignition. And so you watch, he's fumbling. He's like, ah, he's doing all of this. Come on, man. And, and, and of course the Tyrannosaurus is coming. Ah, ah, ah. And it's getting closer and closer and the closure is coming that of course the drama and the music and you're thinking to myself dude just take a, how hard is it to put a key in the ignition and the answer is nearly impossible when you are in fear of your life the most basic motor skills the most the, the easiest the most obvious thing that anyone can do becomes nearly impossible when you are in thanatophobia so Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, listen to this, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. <laughs> their entire life were made subject to bondage. How? Through the fear of death. And so death has been weaponized. Our politicians have figured it out. And now the people, it's in the, it's in the churches. People walk around virtue signaling with their uh, masks, much like many people do with other forms of clothing. It's just a virtue signal. Look at me, I'm holy. Look at me, I'm righteous. Look at me, I believe. Blah, blah, blah. I've got a, a ribbon on my shoulder. Therefore, I am against uh, breast cancer and blah, blah. And if you don't wear the, the ribbon, then obviously you're for breast cancer, which is ridiculous. Um, I, I just thought, what if the federal government came up with a rule and a new mandate. And this mandate is because there's a virus that is spread by mosquitoes. And this mandate is that all women must wear denim jeans. I wonder how people would push back against that if they would. You see, because now, now you're for, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't do that. Well, sure. If they can force a mask on our face, why couldn't they force something else on us? They have no right to dictate what I wear. That is not their job. And so we've ceded all this ground to the government and it's grown larger, just like many, um, anything that you feed is going to grow larger and we're keep feeding the monster. As a result, churches have become weak and anemic and fear has infected the church and people are walking around. Churches aren't growing. 40% of churches, there's a church, one of these large mega churches in Georgia that hasn't had church in a year. It blows my mind. In this whole process, we had people come from, we were in Jennings, Louisiana. We had people drive from Bro Bridge, from Lafayette, from as far away as 65, 70 miles away because people are starving to assemble. 
to be in church with the body of Christ. And so through all of this, our church grew through all this. We had uh, exponential numbers, uh, both in attendance as well as in our finances. God's blessed the church. Uh, we're right now in the process of building a new 800 seat auditorium. And uh, it's, it's just doing God's doing it. But it's a church of converts. It's, it's not a church of second and third generation Pentecostals. And I'm not opposed to that. I'm just trying to give you a description of what what the church that I pastor is. It is a church made up of people that have been taught Bible studies and been converted. And so consequently, it doesn't look like a typical traditional Pentecostal church because it's young in its um, demographics. So, anyway. so, so what do you think it says about us, how easily we shut things down? Because we, for generations, we've preached about how church is the most important thing. Church is something you, you go to even when you don't feel like going to. Church is the place where you go and you get healed. And, and we look at people throughout church history. I had a friend that pointed this out to me. And this is not to make a theological argument about the person's theology, but it is very interesting and very convicting when you think about how Martin Luther stood up against everyone in his society for what he believed in with the Protestant Reformation. He stood up against the Catholic Church and and we mock him that he's going to split the pit because of his theology. And yet the boldness and faith he had yes. puts us to shame in that, as you said, a governor can just nicely ask and we shut down churches and some places they're still shut down. And, and even, but anyway, not to make a point on my end, but to ask you, what do you think it says about us? How quickly we changed and we, here's a word that we're not, that it's always a curse word against apostolics. We compromised that easily. What do you think about it? I think it identified uh, how shallow uh, many churches are and how shallow our faith is. And this isn't to hurt us. It's to help us so that the church can step up and recognize the weakness and fix it. Um, I think many people pastor the way Rehoboam led uh, after Solomon. They pastor out of fear of their peers, as opposed to hearing from God and doing what God is speaking to them. Their, their finger is in the air, trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing, uh, whether it's racism, whether all, all of this is fear. It's all manipulation. And this goes back to uh, a message I preached titled The Unholy Trinity. Of course, we're oneness. So I preached on the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity started in the Garden of Eden. It began with Satan giving a lie. And then it resulted in two things after that. The lie was a fabrication. And so the unholy trinity is fear and guilt built on a foundation of lies. So I got a question for you guys. What came after the lie? Was it fear or was it guilt? Got an answer? Guilt. Yes. It was guilt, uh, was, not fear. I was waiting on Brian to answer because we had this conversation a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was guilt because. And I got Adam it right the first said, time too. <laughs> Adam said, I was afraid because I was ashamed. The guilt came. So it was fear, then guilt, then, came, excuse me, it was lie, then guilt, then the fear. So the lie is a fabrication. The guilt is a manipulation and the fear is an intimidation. When you have the power of fabrication, manipulation and intimidation, you have omnipotence. And that describes completely what we've given to the government. We've given them 
the power of an unholy trinity. And so they can control, they can control our churches. Here we are oneness and letting the power of an unholy trinity manipulate us. I, I, I am not about to defend the fact that I am not a racist because I am not going to receive transferred guilt. I'm not going to receive borrowed offense. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to stand up and say how many black friends I have or Mexican friends I have. I can't stand that. It's just, it's disgusting. I heard a very, very pronounced popular person. I won't say this person's name, but make a statement. Um, when I, this person said, when I walk into a room, an apostolic room, and it's like a conference and a bunch of leaders are gathered and they're all the same color, it makes me nervous, especially if they're all the same gender. I'm thinking that is the most idiotic. So let me ask you a question. How would you have felt if you walked in the upper room and saw 13 Jewish men together? It's just, it's just idiotic because they're, what they're doing is trying to follow the culture instead of leading. You have no authority. What, why, why do we preach diversity when it comes to the Philippines? How can we have Filipino crusades and there are no uh, white people in the audience? There, there's no Asians in the audience. There's, there's no Greeks in the audience. It's all Filipinos. Why is that okay? Why is it okay for when we go to India and we have a crusade in India and there's 100,000 Indians there? Well, where are all the, the, uh, the Anglo-Saxons? It's, it's, just, it's, it's total stupidity because we allow them to manipulate us into a narrative that is false. And so we have men in our movement, they, they walk by race, not by faith. They live by race. Their race comes before their faith. They are a color first. Then they are a Christian. They are an ethnicity first. They are a culture first. Then that's wrong. My faith is first. I, I am a Christian before I'm a man. I'm a Christian before I'm a father. I'm a Christian before I am a, a husband, before I'm white, before I'm Italian or French. I am a Christian. My faith is first. So, of course, this gets me in hot water with some people. But our church is a, is a church that represents the culture. We win people. We're not after black people. We're not after white people. We're after people, period. And I'll tell you the people we're after. We're after people that are in the 4-H club. If you're not in the 4-H club, the gospel can't help you anyway. So we're just looking for people in the 4-H club. And so you ask, what is the 4-H club? Well, I'll tell you. It's the hurting, the hungry, the humble, and the honest. And of those four H's, only one begins with a silent H. And it's the one you can't be silent about, honesty. And you find all four H's in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, he said, blessed are they which do hunger. He said, blessed are they which do mourn. There's the hurting. He said, blessed are the meek. There's the humble. Blessed are the pure in heart. There's the honest. The hungry, the hurting, the humble, and the honest. When I find someone that's in the 4-H club, I'm after them. I don't care who they are. If they're transgender, CIS, if they are transitioning, I don't care. If they're same-sex couple, I don't care. Just give me people in the 4-H club. So our church, we do have same-sex couples. In our church, we do have people who are living together. In our church, we do have addicts. We have people who need to hear the gospel. The church isn't a place for the holy to huddle. It's a place for the hurting to gather. You don't wait until the blood stops flowing to go to the emergency room. You don't wait until you get the mud and the blood off of your body. I need to go to a place that can take me with the mud and the blood. That is the church. What are we doing shutting down? Why would we shut down the hospitals in the middle of a pandemic? This is exactly what we've done with the church. We've shut down people's hope and help in the midst of a pandemic. What people need to counterdict the fear is faith and faith cometh by hearing. If God wanted a machine to spread his word, he would have never come in the flesh. Now, I'm not opposed to us using the internet. I've been on the radio for the last 22 years. I spent a ton of money. I've spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars broadcasting the gospel. I have a broadcast on a 100,000 watt radio station, KAJN 102.9 FM. I broadcast 11 times a week, Monday through Friday at 8.30 a.m., 8.45 a.m., 
uh, and Monday through Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. I absolutely believe in using all means possible to spread the gospel, but there is no substitute for the feet. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring good tidings. That's a human being. Jesus Christ was God manifest in flesh. The word manifest comes from a Latin phrase meaning caught in the act. Jesus Christ was caught in the act of being God. You and I need to be like Christ. We need to be caught in the act of manifesting God in the flesh. So if I'm a Christian, I need to be caught in the act being a Christian. I need to be caught in the act of healing the sick, of preaching the gospel, all these things. It's to be done in the flesh. So I'm very passionate about assembling. I'm very passionate about what's taking place with the masks. I have not put on a mask. I don't wear masks at all. Haven't put one on yet. Have it. So that means whenever I had to go to North Carolina, I drove. When I had to go to Nashville, I drove. Uh, going in the restaurants, if I have to wear a mask and I'm not eating in the restaurant, I go to another restaurant. I just I put my foot down. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm not going to be ugly about it, but I'm not wearing one. It's my face and you have no right. I know the masks are ineffective. They are as effective at stopping the virus as a crucifix is at stopping demonic activity. It's as effective at stopping the virus as a screen door is on a submarine stopping water. It's, an, it's, an, it's total insanity. You can place 1,200 virions of the particles of the virus on, a, on the tip of a strand of hair. 1,200 can fit on the tip of a strand of hair. And we think a mask is going to stop that. It is absolute insanity. Guess how long a particle, an aerosolized particle of COVID-19, guess how long it stays in the air? How, how long it takes for an aerosolized particle of, of COVID-19 to fall five feet. An hour, a day, here's your answer, 178 hours. It takes 178 hours for a particle of COVID that is suspended in the air five feet to fall to the ground. Now, how valuable is a six foot social distancing rule? It's absolute insanity. So where are you getting this information, Clifton? I'm getting it from subject matter experts. I'm getting it from industrial hygienists. I'm getting it from people who are in the field who do this. Medical doctors are not subject matter experts as pertaining to aerosolized particles like COVID-19. So again, but you have to dig. It just takes a little bit of effort. Most people are willing to do this. Most people sit back and allow the people that are in authority to do it. We're just assuming that they have our best interests in mind when many times they don't. And so I think that's what happened in our churches. Most of our churches are not used to pushing back. We've gotten so comfortable with being accepted and being acceptable and, and tailoring our services so that people will come to them where we, we've lost the edge of just being truly biblical. The words that we toss around, Pentecostal, apostolic, of course, we all know those aren't biblical terms. I know where they come from. But if we're going to be, quote unquote, Pentecostal or quote unquote, apostolic, then let's do what the apostles did. They gathered. They reached out. They laid hands on the sick. They did not turn away whenever it was illegal for them to preach the gospel. They preached it with even greater fervor. Paul continued to preach while in prison. He preached to the men who held him captive. That's our job. To, to, you know, I just took this serious. I took it serious from the very beginning, and I still take it serious. And it blows my mind how many people didn't. And they could argue, well, we just took it serious, Pastor. But, you know, we just I'm like, okay, you do what you want to do. The result is your people did not assemble. The result is your church has, has shrank dramatically. How do you get up in the pulpit and preach that God heals the sick when you don't give them the opportunity to do it? How, what, what, how, how duplicitous is this? That's like, like having an empty, that is the same as having no baptistry or an empty baptistry and preaching every sermon on water baptism, on the essentiality of water baptism. 
Oh, it's man, baptism is so important. You've got to be baptized. You need to be baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, we don't have a baptistry, and oh, we do, but there's no water in it. But believe me, you need to be baptized. Oh, it's such an essential thing. How stupid is this? Why would I preach something and not practice it? What did the apostles preach? What did they practice? Now, I use this all the time in teaching doctrine. I want to preach what the apostles preached and practice what they practiced. There are things that were preached that were never practiced. So therefore, we should never practice what wasn't practiced. Jesus said, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. Was that ever practiced? The answer is no. Because if people did that, no one would have eyes. He said, if your hand offends, you cut it off. That's what was preached. Was that ever practiced? The answer is no. Because if that was the case, no Christian would have hands. So there are some things that were preached but weren't practiced because they were used as a metaphor. But there are some things that were preached and were practiced. Whenever he said, whosoever shall believe on the Lord or call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in Acts 2.21, he was quoting from the Old Testament. There's no one that ever called upon the name of the Lord in the New Testament and was pronounced saved. But I can turn to the book of Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 10, and chapter 19 and show you John 3.5 and Acts 2.38 fulfilled. So this is what they preached. This is what they practice. I cannot separate the plan of salvation from the supernatural working of the spirit in Mark chapter 16 in the Great Commission. There was a Facebook live I, I saw you do one time where you said you were a polemicist. And I got nervous because I was like, I thought he only had one wife. <laughs> but, then, but then you defined it that a polemicist is someone that engages in controversial debate. So so we, we've talked. I asked you my last question. On, on your perspective of it, what you think about um, people shutting down. But let me ask from the other side, because the argument on the other side is, but social distancing and, and masking and all these things are a way of practicing love and respect for others. And there are people in our churches that are highly susceptible. And, and so, you know, there's an, another side of what people are saying. And so I'm wondering, how do you respond to those that say, because uh, I saw someone who posted that that it about Tony Spell. They they made a blog, and in the blog they talked about how um, social distancing was the practice was the ultimate was an expression of love. How can they were no? What was it they asked Tony? They said um, that how is it that you are loving your neighbor by ignoring a reality of a sickness that's highly contagious? Yeah, those, that's a lot. Yeah, well, to the, the first accusation, it, it's a lie to say that, you know, it's an act of love to respect people because this is a very contagious disease that is fatal. That's completely false. It is it is not nearly as contagious as everyone makes it out to be. And it is not nearly as fatal as is proven by statistics. And I could give you the numbers would would be mind numbing. Um, and so the ultimate act of love is for is for us to stop assembling. That's ridiculous. That's that would mean that. For us to truly love the, the people who are lost in foreign fields, we need to kill all of our missionaries and burn all our buildings down so these people all can be saved. The last thing we want for them to, is to hear the gospel where they could possibly reject it. And I'm talking about the fatalist view who say uh, that people can be saved through ignorance. And so this, the same is true with this. How is it showing love whenever we are taking away from the people the body of Christ? The church is the body and a disassembled body cannot function. If you are in a room and you find an arm, that is not a body. You go to another room and you find a leg, you have found the scene of a murder. We have witnessed the murder of the church over the last year and a half. And people are celebrating it and trying to give some kind of virtue to it when we are afraid to admit we've made a mistake. I, I have made mistakes. I have preached terrible sermons. I've given bad advice and I've owned up to it. This is a part of our Christianity. 
you have to confess your sins. The word confess means to own, O-W-N. It's where the phrase own up to it. It's through confession that you obtain possession. So when I confess my sins, I'm taking ownership of it. Okay, I believe the church made a massive mistake, not a similar. That's just me. I'm not trying to judge all the pastors. who. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'll give you an out here in a second. Um, but from my perspective, to not hold services is to violate scripture, to not preach the gospel, to not assemble, to not lay hands on the sick, to not lay hands on people to receive the Holy Ghost is to violate scripture. That is completely anti-apostolic. The apostles gathered under threat of death. The apostles gathered under, uh, under threat of imprisonment and so forth. Now, let me give the pastors an out. I was at a conference of the day and a, a, a preacher made a comment about John the Baptist. I cannot remember the title of the message. It's unimportant at this point, but he made a statement about John that helped me to have more empathy to my brothers because I'm, we're on the same team. None of these men that, that stopped having services are my enemy. None of them. We're all on the same team. Um, just put a bookmark right here. Um, when, when Barack Obama was president, I absolutely did not endorse him as president. I opposed almost every policy decision he made. But if we ever got attacked by North Korea, by God, that's my president. And I want him to succeed as a chief commander of our military. Whenever America, when the planet Earth, if we are ever attacked by Mars, North Korea becomes our ally. We want North Korea to use their nuclear missiles to fight against the Marsans who are attacking planet Earth. My point is this, the larger the enemy, the greater the unity. The larger the enemy, the greater the unity. So the enemy is not my brother. It is not the government. There is a demonic force that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the enemy. And when we realize that that is the enemy and not the brother down the road who's preaching things a little bit different than me and not the missionary down the road who preaches things different than me, it is, it is that Satan himself, that's the enemy. Then our unity will grow and all this junk that divides us begins to dissolve. We, we, we allow uh, forbearance of one another. Now, this, the story goes to John the Baptist. Here is John the Baptist. He is the one who leapt in his mother's womb whenever his mama went into the room where Mary was and Mary announced that she was pregnant. And the Bible says John the Baptist. So from as a fetus, he recognizes who Christ is. You go through all the scriptures and read what John the, John the Baptist baptized Christ and heard the voice and saw the spirit descend like a dove. It's John the Baptist who said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John. It's John. And yet when John is in prison and in fear for his life, he says, Jesus, are you the one or should we send for another? Now, the way Jesus responds to that is he looks at the audience and says, of men born among women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. And here's the greatest man of all men who is in fear of his life. And in that moment, he is doubting who Christ is. When he is the forerunner, for God's sake, of Christ, he's the one who made straight the path of the Lord in the highway, in the wilderness, all that stuff. And so the point is, when we are in that level of fear, then you have to extend some mercy to some men. I happen to be one of those men that this fear did not affect in that way. But I believe it's because I had been inoculated to it forgive the reference, but vaccinated against it because I had this when I was 14, 15, and 16. I had to stand against, I had to debate priests, catechism teachers, my ninth grade teacher, my 10th grade teacher. I'd preach in the gymnasium in school between classes. Uh, I remember going on the, uh, at the fairgrounds when I was 14 years old, got on the Bible bus, 
And this dude began to talk about accepting Christ as your personal savior. And I stood up and said, well, what about Acts 2.38? What about John 3.5? And I started quoting the scripture and he kicked me off his bus. So I, I'm, I've, I've been confronting lies since I was a teenager. So I know th- this, is, this is normal for me, but a whole lot of people did not buy the truth the way I bought it. So I have a lot more, I believe, respect for it. And I cherish it more because I've paid a price for it. And I think a lot of people haven't paid that price, or at least they've forgotten that they have. And so I give, I give my brothers uh, mercy, uh, and I'm not here to, to hurt them or to castigate them, but I am someone who would point to, hey, this, this was a mistake, and you ought to, because what are we going to do when the next round, because it's, it, it's not going to stop. Now that they know that all it takes is COVID-19, when they say COVID-19 again, or COVID-20, or COVID-21, or whatever term they come up with. So now do we just wait until the government tells us we can have services again? There's no way. The answer is no, never again. When you cross the faith line, you've crossed the line. At the beginning of this, I preached a message to the church titled, A Certain Man in Uncertain Times. That's what the world needs. And I went through the scriptures and found a certain man. A certain man went down. A certain man, da, da, da. Look at what a certain man is. And that's what we need in these times is a certain man. People who are certain are convinced about what they believe. I'm not just convinced. I can convey what I'm convinced of. And we need convinced conveyors who can converse convincingly and create new converts. (laughs) So I want to um, put the COVID-19 aside for a minute, unlike the world has, (laughs) but I would, I would like to um, kind of continue on the same path um, about fear. I would like for you to spend the next couple of minutes and, talk to our brothers and sisters that are listening to this. Um, Cause like you said, we, um, we are a united group of people and I, I would like for you to talk to, to them um, about living in fear, um, not necessarily about COVID or not necessarily about, um, you know, health or anything like that. Um, but people who have just had sleepless nights, um, people who, uh, can't get comfortable with the thought of life. Um, I just, it's, it's, it's mind blowing um, how many people have just immersed themselves um, with, with fear, the thought of fear. Um, I, I loved what you said a while ago. I, I tried to write it down, but uh, by the time I picked up my phone, you're on to another subject, <laughs> but uh, you were talking right. about when faith is present. Uh, what, what Rational was, thought. Rational, rational thought, thought is absent. It's just out the door. It's just, it's not there. And I want you to talk a little bit to our listeners that may struggle with fear um, over, over their life and something they're just completely immersed in right now. Um, the, the, the fear has to, the fear of death is evidenced in faithlessness in the resurrection. If you truly believe in the resurrection, if you truly believe that your life is a vapor, as James, the brother of Jesus, said. A vapor. I illustrated this other day by having uh, some uh, air fresher. I squirted the bottle and then try to grab it. Just, just reach for each little, it's, it's impossible. Just a squirt. And I did another squirt. That's your life. You're spending your entire life worrying about that. That is going to be gone in a moment. Eternity. It's not a long time. It's the absence of time. If I believe in eternity, if I believe in the resurrection, this kills the power of death 
in my life. It boils down to the fear of death. It's not fear in general. It is the fear of death. All of the fears are subservient to the fear of death. You conquer the fear of death. You have conquered fear, period. Jesus said in Acts chapter one, uh, after that, you shall receive the Holy Ghost. You shall be my witnesses. The word witness in Greek is martos. The word martos means martyr. A martyr is someone who is willing to die for what they believe. <laughs> this is Christianity. We're over here thinking that the, the, the greatest evidence of the Holy Ghost is speaking in tongues when in fact it's not. It's speaking in testimony. Speaking in tongues is the evidence of a birth. Speaking in testimony is the evidence of maturity. And we no longer testify. All we do is speak in tongues. And because we don't testify, we don't have a shield of faith. We're not thick skinned. We don't know what it's like to have rejection. And so the church, we celebrate. We're navel gazers. We're, we, 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 we march boldly forth. Uh, in our bathtubs uh, with scuba gear, <laughs> you know, thinking that we can conquer the world when in fact all we're doing is preaching to ourselves, never really getting involved in lost people. This is this is the way the rest of the world lives constantly. The, the issue is the fear of death. The, the Bible says, if our hearts condemn us not, then have we confidence. The word confidence in Latin is confideo. The phrase confideo means with God. If our hearts condemn us not, then have we confidence. Confidence comes from a lack of condemnation. When you are under condemnation, you cannot be confident at the same time. This is why Adam and Eve were evicted out of the garden. They could not be with God. They could not be confident because they were under condemnation. The root word of condemn is damn. And a dam is something that blocks the flow. Whenever you are condemned, there is a blockage. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. That river isn't flowing when you are in fear when you are in condemnation. So that's what guilt does. Guilt brings the condemnation and the condemnation has blocked the flows of God. Now, all of a sudden, you're just, you're just existing for Christ. You're not thriving or living. You're just existing. And so fear has become something that people have, have what's the word I'm looking for? They have celebrated fear. They have made fear a virtue now. The masks, man, they walk around proud, proudly wearing masks. Again, they should be wearing garlic around their neck to keep vampires away. It's the same thing. It is a superstition. It is an amulet. It is no different than a crucifix. It's the same thing. It is powerless. The problem is our people don't know this. Our people are destroyed by, for lack of knowledge. They don't know. They believe the masks are effective. They are not. I can show you, I can prove to you that the masks are effective at spreading the disease, not stopping it. There was a pandemic in 1918, the Spanish flu. They've exhumed bodies and they found out what killed the majority of the 50 million that died wasn't the Spanish flu. It was bacterial pneumonia. Guess where the bacterial pneumonia came from? The masks. And so they had, I can show you the article from the 1920s that about these stupid masks that they studied and showed that these masks did not help. They hurt the people. We are repeating history. We are back to medieval times. We're, 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 we're bloodletting George Washington, thinking that, oh, he's sick. Let's, let's get the bad blood out of him. Let's get some leeches. It's the same thing. They've thrown away all science. They've violated all OSHA regulations. They've violated all the civil liberties. They've thrown all this out because of a political agenda and a one world. They're trying to bring this. This goes, this goes on such a global. So we step into the political realm. America's gross domestic product was $19.8 trillion in 2018. The gross domestic product of America, the sum of goods and services produced by this country, $19.8 trillion. 
we have 327 million people in America. The closest runner up to America, China. With 1.3 billion people, they produced their, their gross domestic product was 12.2 trillion. America that has, they have four times the population and we have 64% more gross domestic product. How is that possible? Is it because of our race? Is it because of our ethnicity? No, it's because of the constitution of the United States that is based on the Judeo-Christian ethic that releases mankind to fulfill his greatest potential. And the great global reset that's happening right now is to take that number. If you look at the pie chart, you see that America produces 24% of planet Earth's gross domestic product. No one comes close to that. The closest competitor to America is China at 11 or 12% of the gross domestic product. So here's America at 24%. Closest competitor is China. Then all the little, all the countries, all the rest. So America, by a far stretch, is number one. The great global reset is to take that big chunk of the pie and reduce it down and spread it to all these third world countries, basically going to the pockets of despots and dictators and bringing America into a sense of equality, which is totally unbiblical, totally unbiblical. All this, again, I, I push back against all this stuff. There's no such thing as equality. We're equal in the eyes of God only. And that's the only place we're equal. None, none of us look the same, have the same height, have the same intelligence, have the same strength. We are absolutely not equal. We should be equal in the eyes of the law and we should be equal in the eyes of God, but we're not equal among ourselves. That's insanity. Then everybody's a boss or everybody's an employee. But this, this pop psychology, this, 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 this poppycock is, is, is infiltrating the minds right now. 70% of millennials have a favorable view of socialism. That's, that's insane. What's, what's happened is the liberals and, and the socialists have infiltrated, our governments have infiltrated our schools. They are playing the long game, much like uh, Satan is. He's playing the long game. Whereas people who have a, a, a conservative view of government or who have a Christian view, we just think, well, you know what? We're right. And, and, and right should just stand for itself. We should have to defend it. By God, it's right. Everybody knows it's right. No. The reason the 2% the, the of, of the population that's homosexual are getting what they want is because they are loud and they are proud. While the silent are majority, uh, excuse me, while the, while the majority are silent, keeping their mouths shut because they don't want to offend anybody, don't want to hurt anybody. I'm not trying to offend men or churches or pastors by saying what I'm saying. I'm speaking the truth. I'm, tell, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting Bible. I'm getting research. Here, here it is. But people don't want to hear because of this. It is, um, uh, what's his name? Ben Shapiro, who says, facts don't care about your feelings. And I want to add to that. Faith don't care about your facts. There are people who believe in this disease so much that no amount of facts that I show them, I present them, I can show them what the masks do. I can talk about the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. I can talk about aerosolized particles that it takes 1,200 that fit on the tip of a strand of hair, takes 178 hours to fall to the ground, means nothing to them. Blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Means nothing because they have faith in the disease and faith doesn't care about your facts. And so faith in, in death, faith in fear is exactly what's happened. We have switched gears. Instead of having faith in God and walking in faith, we have faith in a disease and we walk in fear. I absolutely refuse to do that. Had a good friend come to my house the other day and uh, he's diagnosed with COVID-19. I shook his hand and hugged his neck because I know in order for me to catch COVID-19 from him, a droplet has to fall out of his mouth into my mouth. That ain't happening. 
Secondly, if it's aerosolized, it has to go, get into my deep tissue. I know how that happens. And it isn't going to happen in five minutes. It takes him being in the room for half an hour to an hour before they can get into the deep tissue of my lungs. And, and it isn't going to be stopped by a stupid mask. Knowing all of this gives me courage. I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to go to church. I'm not afraid to, to shake hands. I'm not afraid to eat out. I'm not afraid to do anything. The fear comes from peers. And I'm not afraid of my peers. I respect my peers, but I'm not afraid of them. And I'm not going to preach out of fear of my peers. I'm not going to preach something that everybody wants me to preach because that's what they're preaching. And I'm not going to say what everybody wants me to say. I'm not going to get up online and say, oh, I'm against racism. I'm against racism. Well, you didn't say you were against pedophilia. You got to say it because if you didn't, you obviously are for it. That's the same logic. I don't have to speak out what I'm against just because everybody else is doing that. I know who I am. And there's such a need for people who are convinced and confident. And, and it's lacking. And in my opinion, it's lacking because there are precious few people who are out there um, in the public, interacting with the public. I, I've been teaching Bible studies at a high school for 25 years in the public school. I'm constantly in front of a secular audience. I'm always in front of sinners, whether I'm teaching Bible studies or motivational speaking or doing it at the schools. I'm always in front of sinners. That gives a man an edge. Whereas being in the pulpit, preaching to a bunch of people who believe what you believe, that can take your edge away over time. So how did your uh, saints in your church, how did they um, react whenever... Um, Everybody else around them were shutting down um, and they had you as their fearless leader. What, what was that reaction like? They absolutely, you just have to come to church and see. They're, 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 we've had one preacher come preach for us who wore a mask and they were appalled. Could not believe he walked in the building with a mask. That is crazy. But I love and respect him. And so, I mean, he's, he's, he's free to do what he wants. Um, but uh, brothers, the, the sheep take on... The, the DNA of the leader, right? You, 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 if these are principles as, as a pastor and as a parent, you can't lead someone you need. If I need my daughter's affection, if I need it, then ultimately she's going to use that to manipulate me and get me to let her do something that she shouldn't do. You cannot lead people that you need and you cannot lead if you're not willing to bleed. To lead requires pain and to lead requires you being willing to lose people. Christ did not run after uh, the apostles who walked away whenever he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He knew good and well what they were thinking. And he, he said it multiple times, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, you have to eat my body. He didn't qualify and say, hey, by the way, this is a metaphor. By the way, you know, this is an analogy you can use. No, he let them walk away, misunderstanding what he's saying. And so he looks at the apostles and says, well, thou go also. And, and basically they said, you know, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They're, they're saying, we don't have a clue, but we just know we're not leaving. And it's not until the upper room, whenever Christ breaks bread and says, take this, all of you eat, it is my body. Finally got it. Where did they get it? They got it when they assembled with Christ. That's when they got it. They got it at an assembly with him. When they, when they continued to assemble, they stayed around him long enough through the times that they did not understand what he was talking about. They didn't walk away during that period of time. And that's what we have to do. We have to stay. You just keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If they make church illegal tomorrow, I'm still having church. I told my congregation, if, they, if you come to the church and there is a padlock on the church, you still come to the church because I will be on the property telling you where we're going to assemble. 
If the police are on the property, then you look across the street because I'm going to be across the street on the neighbor's property at this location. And I will then tell you where we're going to meet. But we are going to assemble. You don't ask me for having church. We're absolutely having church. We'll be meeting on Wednesdays and we'll be meeting on Sundays. Now, we may not be advertising if it's illegal, but we will absolutely meet and we will spread through word of mouth where we're meeting. This this isn't this isn't a game for me. This this isn't my I am not in the industry. I am in the ministry. Those are two different things. I know people in the preaching industry. They make a living preaching sermons, administering a budget, pastoring a church. They may be Christians. They may not. They may be adulterers. They may not. They may be homosexuals. They're in the industry. It really doesn't matter. But then there are those who are in the ministry. These are men who are called. Some of them make a living at it. Some of them don't. But in the ministry, you don't care. You're doing what you are called to do. I know people in the gospel music industry. I met some at a Catalyst conference a few years ago. I was at a hotel and one of the performers, a, a, a Christian uh, recording artist whose name you would all know, was asking the hotel, because I was there talking to the clerk. He was asking the clerk about where a bar, a certain bar was or a certain party was because he was going there that night and he was checking in at midnight. So here he is at midnight going to a bar, going party. The next day, he's going to be performing at Catalyst. He's a recording artist whose songs we worship to. Now, he is a gospel. He's in the gospel music industry. He earns a living singing gospel music. He is not in the ministry. And so when it comes to this thing called pastoring, I believe there's two categories of people, those who are in the industry and those who are in the ministry. And again, I'm not trying to call out anyone. I'm just saying there's a difference. Whenever you're called to this, you do this. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. This is what you do. This costs me my family. It costs me my mom. It costs me my dad. It costs me my brothers, my sisters. It costs me everything. But that price prepared me for what I would pay for later in life. So um, I, I can't get away with it. I almost, I almost cracked a joke because you were talking about the guy waiting on the bar. And I almost said, well, be careful. How you what you'd say about this guy because you never said what you did with that joint earlier. <laughs> That's right. Well, that was said <laughs> tongue in cheek, trying to get a yeah. response from the audience. Yeah, I got you. But uh, you know, uh, again, there's just a lot of things. Of course, you, you've put a put a lot of information out there. You, you've, we've talked about, even though we talked a lot about COVID, there's a lot of things that it's uh, it's connected to that we've discussed and and like. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm curious because I'm, I mentioned before how you said you were a polemicist. What's your favorite thing to discuss? Oh, the that, scripture. <laughs> like, I don't like, know what, what you're going to say next. Like, like what in scripture? Because like um, I really enjoy dialoguing and having uh, conversations and talking about things. A lot of people don't talk about what's your what's your favorite thing in scripture that doesn't get talked about very often that you you love having an opportunity to talk about. Oh, um. Well, there's several things come to mind. The, uh, probably the first thing that comes to mind, um, I mean, I've got, you know, I've cut my teeth on doctrine. I debated priests and catechism teachers. And so these are things that are top of the mind for me. Top of the mind, T-O-T-M, totem, a totem pole. A totem pole is a, a, a wood dowel in the ground that identifies a tribe of a particular Native American Indian. And so um, I have these scriptures that I call totem scriptures, T-O-T-M, top of the mind. They're scriptures that you should memorize and commit to memory. They identify your tribe. 
So when I'm teaching this to young ministers, I, I have this program called core and I make sure they understand the core of the new Testament. And of course the core of the new Testament is the plan of salvation and the Godhead. Those two things are inextricable. There is a reason you cannot find a Trinitarian church that believes acts 238 is the plan of salvation. They don't exist. You can look far and wide. I have, if they believe in the, in the traditional definition of the, of the Trinity, that there are three persons in the Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent. They do not believe Acts 2.38 is the plan of salvation. So I don't believe you have to believe in the oneness of the Godhead to be saved. I believe you have to be born again to be saved. But there is a connection between the Godhead and the plan of salvation. And you take that easily in Matthew 16. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock was not Peter. It was the revelation of the identity of Christ. So the rock is the foundation of the New Testament church. So the revelation of Christ's identity, which is the Godhead, it's at that point that Christ gives Peter the keys of the kingdom, which, of course, he uses in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, to open the door of salvation to the Jews. So there is a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that pulls that together. It says that Paul says, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the knowledge of the glory of God which is in the face of Jesus Christ, should shine it to them. The light of the knowledge of the glory. The light is the revelation of the knowledge of information of the glory of God's salvation. The revelation of the information concerning salvation is in the identification, the face of Jesus Christ. So that verse pulls together the Godhead and the plan of salvation for me. I love discussing that principle. I do not enjoy talking eschatology because I'm not very well versed in it, but I am well versed in that. I'm very well versed in uh, scriptures pertaining to marriage and relationships. I believe one of the most overlooked subjects in Pentecost is family and marriage. Uh, it is rare to go to a conference, a ministerial conference, and for them to talk in depth about marriage and family. For sure, there's no talk about um, intimacy issues. These are massive, massively important issues that no one talks about. I've got, I've developed. About hey, can, we, 30, can we talk about it just for a little while now? since sure, you bring it absolutely. up because I don't yeah. think we've ever really talked about it here. And of course, let me shut my door because this I'm sitting in my car right now and it's getting pretty warm. So I'd open the door up so the air from the mm -hmm. garage can get in. But, uh, because I forgot to get my keys earlier, but I, I've been interested to talk about that subject because I feel like that's intimacy is a big deal that a lot of families out there are struggling with, but it's rare on a Sunday to talk about it, you may you may be in your church. You've got you yeah, want to have yeah, a Sunday school. Sunday you've got kids Sunday. there, and maybe you don't feel like it's appropriate at the time. And and of course, with intimacy, it's a it's such a wide subject. It's like what do you even talk about because it ranges from sex to just uh, one on one time, all kinds of things. So I'm I'm just interested for a little while to hear your views on it, an, an apostolic view of intimacy. Well, num number one, God is the author of sex. Uh, sex is not satanic. Sex is not demonic. Sex is not perverted. Sex is not ungodly. Uh, whenever he made Adam and Eve, he made them anatomically correct. Um, question, what did a perfect man and a perfect woman do in the garden before sin entered the picture? Hmm? Did they just look at each other? What were they doing? Well, I can tell you what they were doing. The same thing any other red-blooded man would be doing with a gorgeous woman. They were, and it wasn't perverted. It wasn't ugly. It wasn't disgusting. It wasn't, it wasn't sinful. Uh, sex is God's. It's the, the issue isn't sex. The issue is the boundaries of sex. S the Bible says marriage is honorable and the kitchen table is undefiled. I'm sorry, the bed is undefiled. <laughs> so when I'm teaching marriage seminars, Man. I purposely insert that because once you are married, if it doesn't involve another person, pornography or an animal, have at it. 
It's, it's, it's no one's business. You don't talk about it with a bunch of people. You don't share that with everyone. It's, it's between you and your mate. But we have created a, a situation where our culture is oversexed. And so now we're hiding our head in the sand about it. So I'm very detailed. Now, if I'm going to get to details, I'm not going to be in a, uh, a congregational setting where I have children. However, I do like in our church, I do marriage seminars and I do marriage seminars for unmarried people. The first marriage seminar I did for unmarried people was titled The Yoke Ain't No Joke. And I talk about taking your marriage seriously. That might be the title of my next book. And so in there, I talk specifically about sex. I talk about what I, I want the kids to look forward to it. Matter of fact, last night I did a hyphen meeting and I talked about boundaries. I talked about consecration, talked about their bodies, the temple of the Holy Ghost, that God designed them for this. But there is a place for it. And that sex is like fire. Fire on the stove is fantastic. Fire in the fireplace is great. You come to my house and fires on the curtain next to the next to the fireplace. Is there a problem? Oh, you're, you're freaking out. Why? What's the big deal? It's the exact same fire, exact same chemical composition. The difference is if it's on the curtain, it's out of bounds. It's out of control. And now the fire that cooked food and heated the house has the power to destroy everything I hold near and dear to my life. This is what sex is. So it's not, I, I first take away the stigma of it being ugly, disgusting, gross, perverted, and then, you know, the women, of course, you know, we talk about sex, like how often does a man think about sex? Well, the next question is how often does a man think? Because if he's thinking, sex is usually part of those thoughts. Of course, the one can't fathom that because she doesn't think that way, because she's not wired that way. And so I tell the story of the woman who comes to me and says, God, all he talks about is sex, 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 it means sex. I wish he'd just stop it, just stop it. And to which I would reply, uh, well, then why don't you stop having a period? It's just disgusting. Every month, the same thing. It's bloody, it's gross, your hormones, it's just disgusting. Just stop it. And of course, her reply is, well, uh, I, I what? And, and I say, what? And she said, well I, well, I can't help it. Well, why can't you help it? And of course, this leads to her saying, well, I, I have these what? Go ahead and say it. These organs. Oh, that's right. You have some organs that are put in your body. And that's exactly what a man has. There are organs that are put there by God. So we have to learn how to control this. doesn't mean that it's willy-nilly, I can sleep with whoever I want. Of course not. However, to say that sex should be done uh, on such a limited basis and to be so prudish about it that you can't enjoy life, that's equally oppressive and destroys marriages all the time. So there is a freedom of expression when it comes to sex. In the scriptures, I tell the, I'm just giving it to you. Um, I tell the women, your husband's having sex with or without you, but he is having sex. There's four ways a man can have sex, four, at least four. Number one is with you, and that's the best way. That's the biblical way. Number two is with himself. And that in and of itself may not be necessarily wrong unless he, of course, is thinking about someone else or using pornography. The third way is with someone else outside of marriage. And of course, that is immoral and sinful. But there's a fourth way. And the fourth way is actually addressed in the scriptures. And of course, everyone's scratching their head. What in the world? And I'm using this because to illustrate this is a need in a man. It's not a desire. It's not a want. It is a need. A need is different from a desire. A need is an urgent requirement for something essential. And the fourth way a man can have sex is through what the Bible calls an emission in the night. The Bible de describes that if a man becomes unclean because of an emission in the night, well, we know what that is, a nocturnal emission, a wet dream is what the, the vernacular would say. 
the, the re end result is the body is going to take care of it one way or the other. It is going to happen. So whenever I say these things, it is amazing how the light goes off on women. On They're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's why the Bible says to render due benevolence. D-U-E. It is due. It is something owed. Why do you think Solomon in the book of Song of Solomon would say things like, um, <laughs> between her thighs lies a mound of wheat? <laughs> That's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. Her, her legs are like palms, her breasts like fruit. I said, I will climb the tree and obtain its fruit. What's he talking about? You know exactly what he's talking about. He's being very graphic here. And it's not disgusting. It's not gross. And it's not immoral. It's in the Bible. It is the inspired word of God. What about verses like, may her breast satisfy thee at all times? What do we do, do with those verses? That's all no, in the Bible. The one in Psalms that talks about sitting upon their knees under the tree and partaking of his fruit. Yeah. yeah all, all of this. So this, Brian, you weren't at the marriage retreat, but this was presented to us on the Friday night. This is how I knew I was coming back on Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, again, because I'm aiming for the men. I may get these statistics a little bit off, but if, if a child comes to the Lord, there's about a 13% chance that the family comes to the Lord. If the mama comes to the Lord, it's like a 16 or 18% chance that the family comes to the Lord. If the dad comes to the Lord first, over 90% chance the rest of the family follows him. The key is men. It's always been men. You take men out of ministry, you've got history. And the church is history without men. And so when I do these marriage retreats, I am absolutely aiming for the men. I want them to want to come back. And so that's why uh, this one particular church, I think I've done 12 years in a row of marriage seminars. And because the men keep drawing the women back because we don't do the typical thing of you need to get in touch with your feminine side and, and apologize to your wife for all this other stuff. Yeah, There's take the things, things that men have to What you're lovely. Forget all that, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, well, and I, you're talking about, um, you know, the, you you target the man because the man is a vital role in the home and in the and, and in the relationship with God. But that's also why the enemy is against the man and coming against the man and coming against the house is because the enemy knows how vital um, the man is. And, you know, it's it's it blows my mind, um, you know. OK, hey, let's pull this together, men and fear. So this is this is just talk among guys. So you want me to be transparent. I'm going to be very transparent with you. When a guy says something to, about another guy and says, man, that dude's got stones. That means he's bold, right? Means he's bold, means he's courageous, means he's fearless. He, he's got stones. Now, with that in mind, Joshua tells the children of Israel, when you come across a Jordan, take some stones from the river Jordan and put it on this side of the river. So when your children ask, what mean ye? by these stones my point is there have to be stones present in order for the children to question why they're there the reason i'm so adamant about what's going on i want my grandson to say grandpa why were you so fired up back in 2020 and 2021 why did you put out 200 videos on fear and covid and masks and all this why did you compile 5,000 pages of data. What mean you by these stones? He can't ask those questions if the stones aren't present. And the problem is we have some emasculated men. We have spiritual eunuchs who don't have the stones to stand against the culture and to stand against what's happening in the cult in America. And in our leaders, 
and our political leaders and our spiritual leaders, all of them. It ticks me off. I'm watching. I'm like, I, there's no one in Washington. There may be seven human beings in Washington that reflect my values, maybe seven, if that. And the ones who claim to won't stand up. They get seduced by the wealth and all the junk that's in it. It's, it's just a, a quagmire. And I know it because I'm on a very small scale here. Tonight, I had a city council meeting. So that's why we had to have this at, at seven. But at 530, I've been on the city council uh, for four, for five years now. God opened that door for me. But I'm very vocal about values. Matter of fact, whenever the whole mask mandate came out, I went and talked to the mayor. I said, look, if you don't want me to come to the council meeting, I'll stay home. But I'm not wearing a mask. He said, no, sir. He said, I don't believe in the masks either. I said, great. So when I got to City Hall that night, there was a sign on the door on City Hall that says mask required. <laughs> I tore the sign down <laughs> and threw in the trash. Then when I got to the council chambers, there was a sign there that said masks required. I tore that, threw it in the trash. And the city clerk was upset with me and said, you can't do that. And I was very kind. I said, listen, I did it. If anyone has a, com a complaint, you tell them Councilman Clifton Lejeune from District C is the one who did it. Nobody authorized me to do this. I did this all on my own. That was the end of it. It was never talked about again. All we have to do is push back. So a little hashtag, if you follow me on Twitter, I created this little hashtag, push back against tyrannity, which is my word of tyranny and insanity. And that's what we're, we're experiencing is a bunch of tyranny. These people are insane with power. We have to push back. And all it takes is you just saying, no, no, I'm not eating here. If I have to wear a mask, then I'm not eating here. If I have to have a mask to buy shoes at DSW, then I'm not buying shoes from DSW. And that's exactly what they told me. They let me in the building, but they, they told me that you have to have a mask to check out. I said, so I can walk around this building and I can look at the shoes and try them on, but you're not going to check. Let me check out without a mask. I said, you know that the word mask is only one letter from the word mark, M-A-R-K, M-A-S-K. <laughs> this is, here's another message, right-handed or four-headed. I just preached this a few months ago. The mark of the beast can be in the right hand or the forehead, but the servants of God are sealed in their forehead only. Why? Because there are people who take it in the right hand out of convenience. They're not really for the beast or his system. They just want to transact business. They just want to buy groceries. And so they get it uh, on their right hand. But there are some people who believe in the beast and believe in the system. And so they get it on their forehead. They want everyone to know that they're for it and they believe it. The servants of God are sealed only in their forehead. You cannot live for God out of convenience. It must be out of conviction. The servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And the forehead is where the frontal lobe is. And the frontal lobe is where your conscience resides. We must be convinced. We cannot walk around out of convenience. Convenience Christianity is dead and gone. And those churches will dry up as they should. That's a lot of stuff to uh, <laughs> to consider right there, bro. Uh, so you, you told us uh, off record, um, shifting gears here a little bit uh, about what you got going on right now. Um, you're teaching a very unique uh, sermon series at your church right now that I think is more needed now than any uh, other sermon series. I, I watch a lot of your stuff on uh, Facebook. Um, you know, you've got a pretty cool church. You were telling us about uh, these different things that you do, uh, like you had uh, for Father's Day, like a Harley Davidson uh, theme or something. I, I can't remember quite what that was, but you 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 make church uh, here. Here we go. Here's mine. Make church fun again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's what you do because we're we're competing with everything outside the four walls of the church. Church should not be something boring. Church should not be something you dread to go to. Um, church should be something. Yes. That, um, and, and, and I would also say that we shouldn't, I, I don't want to become the guy that markets a church as just a fun place because 
my, my job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. There's going to be times of, of, of strong conviction. I preach hard against sin, hard. I preach hard against gluttony. I preach hard against lack of exercise. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Your body, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit. Body is external, spirit is internal. We must serve him internally and externally. I just preached a message about the, 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 the most important position on Noah's team. Did you watch that message? You ought to watch that. I have not. The, the most important position on Noah's team was the pitcher. The pitcher. Someone had to get pitch. And they had to bring the pitch. And they had to pitch the ark within and without with pitch. The pitch was in two places. In the ark and out the ark. It was inside and outside. The word pitch comes from the Hebrew word kephar. K-A-P-H-A-R. And the word kephar is first translated atonement. It is the blood that atones. The word atone is kephar. Pitch is a type of the blood. The, number, the most important position on Noah's team was the pitcher. The most important person in your life is the pitcher. The word pitch, when used as a verb, means to advertise. I'm pitching the pitch, the blood, and I need to be consecrated internally and externally. So I agree that I, I do work hard to make church fun. I do work hard. When I have a sermon, I'm working hard. I pray, I get a word from the Lord, and then I work to create something fun so there's a hook for you to remember it. However, I am not about to make church a carnival, uh, a sideshow, complete with smoke and mirrors and lights. And I'm not opposed to smoke and lights. Yes. That just cannot take the place of a real anointing. So I am going to spend hours in the church in prayer. I do that every week. I'm going to fast every week. I have done that for th uh, 38 years. I'm going to pray every day. I've done that for 38 years. I'm going to read the Bible every day. I've done that for 38 years. I can say that with a clear conscience. I have consecrated myself from January 2nd, 1983 to this day. So I'm not a fly by night, just feel good. I am the, I'm doing all I know to do, but I am not going to make church a sideshow that appeals to everyone. There are people going to come. They're not going to like it because there's conviction in the house. People come to our church and they, they, they cry. There is a, there is a palpable presence of God, but I've preached often. We are the no judgment zone. That's our hashtag. No judgment zone. I didn't say the no judge zone. I said the no judgment zone because the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, then judgment. Judgment is reserved for after death. While you are alive, there is hope. So I don't care if you transition back and forth a hundred times. There's hope. Come to the house. Let me preach to you. Let me love on you. I got the same sex couple that has come for a while. I preach hard against homosexuality. And when I'm done, I run to them and I hug them and I tell them how much I love them because I mean it. I love them. I'm not trying to hurt them or attack them. I want them saved, but they can't be saved doing this sin. No more than the man who's looking at pornography that's heterosexual. Sex can be saved either. It's, it's just sin. We, we, can't, we can't pick and choose our favorite sins to, to laud against. It's all sin. But we have to love all people, and all people are sinners, including the pastor, including the ministers on the platform. So I don't want to present something that can't be lived. And I think that's why I took issue at the very beginning about what preachers are behind the pulpit is different than what they are out of the pulpit. I don't want that. It's a compliment to me when people say, you're a preacher. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, been pastoring for 28 years and, uh, you know, been married to the same woman for 32 years and uh, I'm living for the Lord. But that ain't enough for some people. There are people who don't believe that I'm real. They believe I'm some kind of don't believe fat meets greasy, charismatic. You know, you could do anything at Clifton's church. You don't believe he don't preach against nothing. That's baloney. I'm actually more conservative than most of the people, you know. I, I'm absolutely for modesty on women. I'm absolutely that a woman should look like a woman and not a man. I'm, I'm all for that stuff. 
but my approach is from the inside out, not the outside in. Okay, a virus. And so, so you're you're debunking the myth that you should look good and not be good. I am debunking the idea that you can be a whited sepulcher and and still live for God. A whited sepulcher is something that is clean on the outside but full of dead men's bones on the inside. Right. I, I believe. Okay. So in Jensen Franklin's book. The Fasting Edge, he plagiarized a, a few of my sermons from youth camp. In 2008, 9, and 10, I preached a message titled Inside Out. You can look this up on YouTube. There's a title, a chapter in his book titled Inside Out. It's word for word, the sermon that I preached. In the message, I told that God, when he first made man, he made man outside in. He formed Adam, and then he breathed into Adam the breath of life. So Adam existed. His body, his bones, everything was there. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. So God made Adam outside in. When you're born again, you're born again from the inside out. All right. So if someone has a virus, you don't have to teach them to throw up. You don't have to teach them how to have diarrhea. If they have a virus, if it's in there, it's coming out. <laughs> okay. If, I, if God is in you, if I can get him in you, it's coming out. I know it. My job is to get it in you. My job is to infect you with the gospel. If I can get you connected to Jesus Christ, reading his word daily, full of the Holy Ghost, praying to him. I know you are going to grow in God. You are going to stop asking questions like, is this a sin? It's going to change to, is this pleasing to you, Father? Those are two completely different worlds. That's what I taught in consecration to our young people last night. And I, you're asking all the wrong questions if you're saying, uh, is it a sin if I do this? Is it a sin if I do this? Am I going to go to hell? That's all the wrong questions. That shows what level of Christian you are. You're a pygmy Christian. You're, you're just entry level. The question must change from, is this a sin or am I going to hell over this to is this pleasing to you, Father? Now you're getting somewhere. Now, now, now you're maturing because then it doesn't matter what, what everybody else is doing. I want to know what pleases him. That boils down to personal intimacy with God. And that's what's lacking. We don't have to have intimacy because the preacher is going to tell us what to do. The church is going to tell us what to do. Well, what happens whenever you get a new preacher who comes up with a bunch of new rules? Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just go to God? I'm not saying that we can't have rules. I'm saying that cannot be the primary way we live for God. I want you to have principles and I want you to have a relationship with God. So God gave us the principle of modesty. He didn't give us the details. Whatever you call not modest today, I can prove was immodest 120 years ago. 120 years ago, it was illegal for a woman to show her ankle on the beaches of Lake Arthur, Louisiana. Today, churches, the most conservative churches among us, women are allowed to show their ankles. So are they modest or are they immodest? Well, if you ask a police officer from the 1890s, that's very immodest. But if you ask an apostolic preacher, that's modest. So who's right? The, the, the reprobate cop from 1890 or the apostolic pastor in 2020? <laughs> you see, it's just these things are defined by geography, era, and culture. It's defined by where you are, when you are, and with whom you are. But whenever we elevate one of our traditions to the level of doctrine, now we are violating scripture. These are our traditions. And I'm okay with having traditions that protect biblical values. But the tradition is just that. It's a tradition. It is not the value. So we have a tradition in the North American church. And our tradition is women wear dresses and skirts. That's a tradition that protects the biblical value of modesty. But to say that skirts and dresses are modest is ridiculous because there are women who wear certain dresses and skirts that go to their ankles that are not modest. So you, you, you get into the weeds about, well, how loose does it have to be an inch off the body, two inches off the body, all this junk. You're asking their own questions. It's a principle. 
And then each pastor has to figure that out for his particular culture. We allow that for foreign missionaries. We allow that for home missionaries. How come in El Salvador, a woman can whip out one of her boobs and, and, and breastfeed her baby right there? How come we can't do that in America? Well, that's because of the culture. It's because of the, of the geography. Well, so is it immodest? Oh, it's, it's immodest here, but it's not immodest over there. Well, how, how, how can't you put that together? Why, why is that acceptable? Because, well, by God, that's in El Salvador. That's in Guyana. Uh, that's in Uganda. Uh, that's in the Amazon. So why aren't they wearing denim skirts like we are over here? Exactly. See, it, 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 it falls apart because we try to apply our Western Christianity to the rest of the world. It doesn't work. If you look at just the Bible and let the Bible tell you, you wouldn't look anything like this stuff. But yeah. you would have a, a pastor would help you. I get it. Again, I'm not I'm not this guy that's, oh, do everything you want. If I found out that God wants me to have long hair, by God, if I'm a female, I'm having long hair. And I don't care what everybody else does with it. I want to have long hair because in his word, it says it's a glorious woman to have long hair. Well, is it a sin to cut your hair? Now we can start getting in the weeds. Well, if it's a shame to be shorn. Well, shame, the first time shame is used, it was worth, it was sin in the book of Genesis. Da, da, da. Great, fine. So the whole Bible, all 66 books, you're going to find this one place on hair and build an entire doctrine on it that separates you from the rest of the world. And you forget about what's most important. What about the fruit of the spirit? What about forbearance, goodness, meekness, temperance, forbearance? All of the fruit of the spirit cannot be seen in an image or picture. In other words, if I showed you the bust of a man, just his face or woman, her face and neck, his face and neck. You cannot look at that image and say, oh, she's kind, loving, forbearing, tall, all these things, because the fruit of the spirit are not illustrated in dress or look. It's illustrated in behavior. And Christianity is about behavior. It's not about ornamentation. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one to another. That is behavior. In John 17, he said, so shall you be my disciples if you bear much fruit. That's all behavior. It's not the way we dress. And again, I'm not saying you can dress any way and be a modest. That's exactly what everybody takes it for because that's how they're oriented. They're not oriented to think in terms of principle and in terms of the fruit of the spirit. And I'm not telling you that my way works all the time. I have people in my church. I have some women whose hair is long and uncut and all they wear is skirts. But I, I, I want to like interject something. I wonder what a pastor of a church that's super conservative, running about 75, I wonder what he does whenever a female plastic surgeon comes to his church and her tithes are around 100 grand a month. I wonder if she has to stop wearing scrubs to do her job. I wonder if he makes an exception for her. I got a feeling he probably does. And knowing that, I know good and well that he would look the other way, like, you know what, you know, she's got a job. I have a daughter who is a nurse. It would be very immodest for her to do her job in a skirt. As a matter of fact, in her first two weeks as an RN at our hospital, she had to jump on top of a bed and restrain an older man with leather straps on his hand or whatever, a cloth. He's reaching and grabbing at her. And, and in nursing homes, the same thing. They make the women wear scrubs because those old men will reach under their skirts and grab those women. So in those conditions, it is immodest for a woman to wear scrubs. This is a no-brainer. What about the people in, in, in northern Alaska in the Arctic Circle? These people don't wear skirts. They get on their snowmobiles because they don't have cars and trucks to get on. They get on snowmobiles. They don't wear skirts on those things. They've got bifurcated garments. Again, it's just we, we've, 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 we've got hung up on, on the wrong thing. I, let the brother figure that out. I'm not here to judge him if that's what he wants. If I go to your church and you don't like, I'm taking my ring off. I'm going to wear long white sleeves. I'm going to do whatever you want. But when I go home to my church, 
I'm going to do what I do. And I'm going to forbear you. But at the end of the day, I'm going to teach people Acts 2.38. I'm going to baptize them in Jesus' name. They're going to get the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to get them to learn discipleship. I have a program called 3D, 3D, three, three dimensions. It's impossible to describe anything in two dimensions. You only get the length and the width. And the reason people's relationship with God is plain or flat is because they lack the third dimension. And the third dimension is the depth dimension. And the depth dimension is the death dimension. And so the three Ds are doctrine, disciplines, and discipleship. And so I have four lessons in discipleship, four lessons in uh, doctrine, and then four lessons in disciplines. And so we put people through this 3D process, and it's there that they develop a deep relationship with God. And the last lesson is on consecration. And it's there that I deal with this subject. As a matter of fact, that was a subject I dealt with our hyphen students, where we talked about modesty. We talked about uh, purity. We talked about everything from tattoos to smoking nicotine to gambling to alcohol to uh, immodest dress, all of that. And that's the place to do it, is in a closed session with people who want to go and grow deep in God. That's what we do. Amen. I agree with you. I've greatly enjoyed having this conversation with you. Um, unfortunately, Melissa keeps looking at me through the door, so I, I think she wants me to wrap it up. So I'm going to have to, uh, you guys, you guys don't have to go to bed. You just can't stay here. I would say you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, but we're not even together right now. We're social distance, man. I can't believe That's it. Even- this is horrible, horrible example. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate you coming on, taking the time to have this conversation with us. There's so much content out there for, for our listeners. Might have and to do part two sometime. Say, say what now? We might have to do a part two again. Oh, I, I, I love this kind of stuff. I love the, an impromptu format where I can just speak uh, off the cuff. Um, I study a lot. I dig a lot. Um, and so there, there's a whole lot of creative words that God has given me. And matter of fact, my book is uh, right now uh, with the publisher and they just uploaded it and gave me my first set of edits. And uh, the title of the book is Lost in the Woods. The, wo- the word wood is the past tense of will. Uh, it's a book about the power of intentionality. Uh, in the woods, you find lions and bears. And the reason you barely make it is you've been lying to yourself. You're lost in the woods. So that will be out in the spring. It's one of the, they say these publishers, these books, are like a motivational self-help book, are best to be debuted in the spring when people are getting fresh starts. So that will be finished uh, come the spring, but the book is basically written. All I got to do is the edits and the upload, uh, you know, fixes. So anyway, um, this gives me an outlet for all of that extra information that I'm dug up. So I would absolutely love to do this again. Um, I don't know how long I've done this before, but this is two hours. Is this the normal time it takes to do these things? I don't think this is our longest yet. We, we, oh, we, cool. we don't set a time frame on our conversations because the last thing I want to do is like be, be digging and learning and growing and then saying, well, we've reached our max today. See you later. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So cool. yeah, we, we tend to just fire it up until, Either the content runs out, or in this this case, I'm having someone being like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I do I do encourage everybody to go um, befriend this gentleman on Facebook. Um, I mean, you you throw out some great content out there. Brian's uh, motto for telling anybody when they're starting a podcast is what Brian content 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 content. Bro, you, you put it out there. You, 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 I love it, man. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Well, thank uh, you for the opportunity. I'm very before honored. You go, last thing, Brian, we're going to start the music right here. But before you go, I want you to give us one more acronym. Hit it with them. 
Um, I guess the one that just came to my mind off the back is the word pew, because that's what everybody uh, sits on, pew. Pew stands for perfect enemy of worship. Uh, the, word, the word pew means something stinks. <laughs> and it's a stench when you spend all of your life sitting on the perfect enemy of worship. It's time to get off the pew. Guys, thanks for tuning in to the Crucial Conversation Podcast.